It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Breaking news from Capitol Hill just coming in. The House has just passed a $1.5 trillion bipartisan omnibus spending bill. This will keep the government funded through September. Now, this bill also includes nearly $14 billion in emergency funding to Ukraine and Central European allies as the crisis in that war-torn nation continues. Now, the bill actually faced two votes tonight. The first funds the Pentagon, DHS, and other national security priorities. The second vote adopts provisions in the bill related to domestic programs. It will now go to the Senate. All right, Sandy Rios with you this morning, and I need to clarify, because I think I told you yesterday the bill had passed uh, because I didn't understand the process. It is complicated because they have their ways in D.C. They have all of these little things that they do, and one of these little things that they do is continual, continue to spend trillions of dollars on really bad things, and that's what happened last night. They presented this 2,741-page bill a night before last at 1 o'clock in the morning, and passed it in the House, as you just heard in that report. Well, no one knows the drama of this and the implications of this any more than my next guest. Tommy Binion is the Vice President for Governmental Affairs for the Heritage Foundation, and um, Tommy is following this closely. Tommy, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Sandy. It's always good to be with you. I I love the way you phrase that. They have their ways. They sure do, (laughs) don't they? Yeah, remember Mitch McConnell warning Donald Trump that, you know, we something about you don't understand how we do things here. <laughs> you know who does, except for you, Tommy. You've been on the Hill for a long time, and you do understand the ins and outs, and yet you're able to explain it so that people can understand it. Even though I'm laughing, it's really awful. It's really awful what's taking place. And before we get into the process, can you just give us an idea of why this particular omnibus is so bad? Well, first of all, it's six months late. Um, the Congress is meant to complete funding for the fiscal year, which begins on October 1st, sometime before October 1st. But here we are in March, um, and they're not done with it yet. Second of all, it's, it's all combined into one bill. The way the process is meant to work, it's meant to be 12 different bills. And when it's 12 different bills, it allows the Congress to deliberate programmatic funding levels. Well, we shouldn't spend that much here. Maybe we should prioritize this other account. And of course, we're running huge deficits. So let's find some places we can cut. But when it's all combined into one bill, the handshake agreement between the two parties is essentially all the programs that you favor go up and all the programs that we favor go up. And so, of course, this bill is a larger spending bill than before both the spending on the security side and the spending on the domestic side went up fairly dramatically. Um, and then for the first time in 10 years, this bill is loaded down with earmarks. 
Um, but then, I, you know, I'll give a, a visceral example. I'm sure that your audience followed the story that came out maybe three weeks ago that the federal government was sending out crack pipes um, as one of their, uh, uh, you know, outreach programs. The way that those ridiculous and misguided programs get funded is in the context of a 2,700-page bill that nobody's read. The only way something like that slips through is in a big omnibus bill like this. So just on just on those principles alone, I think it's reasonable to say this process is broken. This is not how we should spend all of our money for the year. The federal government is massive. You can't do all of the spending in one vote. It's yeah. um, well, especially when you give it to them with people can't even read it. And Tommy, let me let me interject something because you know some of this language is. Uh, like second nature to you, but not to not to radio listeners. And with earmarks, you know, earmarks used to be in the news a lot, and there was a lot of discussion about it. And the Republicans, uh, to their credit, did away with earmarks. And those are kind of uh, favors for where senators can slip in, you know, something that's named for them, a library or some some such thing, some favor to their district, and it's buried in you know defense spending. Is that uh, is there a further explanation of earmarks that I've left out? No, that that's pretty much it. Individual members get little projects. Most of the time, they're in their district. Things like parks, bridges, things that they could, you know, take credit for back home. Um, but that is, you know, that's that's the sweetener for members to be able to vote for this. But, you know, there's really no political upside in voting for such massive spending. Um, and so members pick one or two things within such a big bill to be proud of. Things like, well. You know, it's really important that we fully fund our military, and so I, I took this vote to do that. Or there's funding for the park in, you know, in, in our district here, and, and, and that's something I secured for the district. So that's, that's, it's, um, that's how the log rolling works. Uh, under a scenario where earmarks are legal, as you pointed out, when Republicans took the majority in 2010, they banned them because it was viewed as so unhealthy to the process, so contributory to our massive deficits and total debt that they had to be done away with. Tommy, we've talked a great deal. I've talked a great deal to my audience. I'm with Chip Roy, and I haven't spoken to Mike Lee personally, but they've been both working to stop the funding of COVID emergency relief money, uh, the mandates. So tell us about that part of the spending bill, if you can, because I'm confused about it, honestly. Well, so there's several um, vaccination mandates. Uh, that are part of the federal government. There was the um, vaccination mandate that would have applied to um, any American working at a large company, over 100 employers. Supreme Court struck that down. So we don't have to worry about that at the moment. But there remains a vaccine mandate for our servicemen and women in the military. There remains a vaccine mandate for our health care workers. And there remains a vaccine mandate for federal contractors. Um, and so Congressman Roy Senator Lee and others have said, look, the only leverage we Republicans have to stop this tyranny, and that's really what a vaccination mandate is, it's tyranny. Um, and it's, you know, uh, I think completely out of step with where how Americans are viewing COVID today, is to use our leverage in the spending process. Um, and so they have demanded that uh, Republican leadership negotiate uh, that these vaccination mandates don't receive any funding. Uh, that was unsuccessful. Uh, of course, uh, under this omnibus, uh, the funding remains for the enforcement of those vaccine mandates. It's a, it's a devastating refusal to 
to fight for what's right from the bulk of the Republicans on the Hill. Hey, let me also add, and I'm reading this from Daily Signal, which is a publication, a great uh, source of information out of Heritage, uh, that the bill also provided $8.45 billion for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and uh, an increase for OSHA by $612 million and an increase for the National Institutes for Health of $45 billion. You know, the, 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 the really horrible players in this COVID theater got a big boost in their bottom line. And, of course, the earmarks are all over this. Um, and I think, um, you know, one of the subheads on this Daily Signal a report this morning, Tommy, says Ukraine as a political pawn. And I do think that's part of what has muddied the waters on this, don't you? Absolutely. There was uh, $13.6 billion um, for, Ukra- for aid related to Ukraine. A, a huge portion of that was humanitarian aid for the 2 million refugees. Um, a, a much, much smaller portion of that was what we would refer to as lethal aid, things like weapons that we may uh, be able to uh, sell or, or give to Ukraine. Uh, some of the security assistance was actually to backfill um, uh, equipment that we've already given them. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, a, that's extraordinarily popular um, uh, a piece of funding, $13.6 billion to help the Ukrainians, which are in desperate need of that help. Uh, and of course, the right thing to do is to help them out. But when you attach that, something that may have gotten nearly unanimous support in the United States Congress to the big omnibus bill, all it does is it makes it it makes it politically harder to vote against. So it's another one of those things that you know it's it, it's just designed to generate votes. Um, and 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 in that way, it's a political pawn, and, and that is not the thoughtful um, nature that we ought to be giving this assistance. It gives. And it gives uh, really bad actors uh, a cover, you know, it gives them cover. And uh, let me just say now in terms of the, like the, nut, the nuts and bolts of how this took place, my understanding is that the Democrats were scheduled to have their yearly retreat Wednesday evening and they had to delay it. And that's why they got this thing through so they could get to the retreat. And by the way, I'm reading that their special guest is a drag queen named Lady Bunny. Uh, so they all have to leave and get to that retreat. But there are other nefarious things, uh, Tommy, as I understand it, um, uh, I believe that it's leadership, meaning Republican and Democrat, that put this thing together and sort of crafted the way it was passed. Um, is that true? Yes. Um, you know, one of the ways to force such a big bill through in in a, a process that is entirely broken, because the members know this is not how it should work. The members know this is irresponsible, it's unhealthy, and it is the driver of our debt and deficit. So one of the only ways to, um, to make it palatable to them is to create an urgent situation. So the government runs out of funding Friday night at midnight, so there is a hard deadline on this. And, of course, the Democrats wanted to um, go on their fancy trip with the steak, the wine, and, and, and Lady Bunny. Um, and so it was, you know, it's an urgent situation because uh, that, that disincentivizes any members from slowing down the process, forcing amendment votes you know, uh, having an opinion one way or the other that would slow the process down. But and stick with me here. This is going to get a little complicated, but this is a really, I think, sinister uh, way of doing this. They took that bill and they put all the security funding in one division, the funding for the Department of Defense, the funding for the Department of Homeland Security, and so on and so forth in one division. And then they put all the non-defense domestic spending, things like the Department of Education, 
the Department of Homeland, I mean, Department of Health and Human Services, in another division. Generally speaking, Republicans favor that security funding more, and Democrats favor that domestic spending more. And so they divided it up in two divisions, and they passed a special rule that said, we're going to vote on this in two parts. But when both of these parts pass, they'll be combined automatically and sent to the Senate. So if you're a Republican and you oppose the entire omnibus, the only way to stop it would have been to vote no on that spending which you favor, the defense spending, because, of course, the, the domestic spending has all the votes it needs. So it's, you know, Republicans who voted for that security spending get to say, that's the only thing I voted for. But that's not quite true, is it? Because it was a, it, you know, it's like a, it's like a two key ignition system and, and you put one of the keys in and turned it. Um, and so it's, it's uh, oh gosh, it's, it is a, a, a political trick that's really unparalleled. Yes, and it's a betrayal. It's another betrayal. I want to say clearly that it was crafted by uh, Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and Kevin McCarthy. They knew exactly what they were doing to get this passed. Uh, and McConnell, I was reading a statement he made this morning, a victory lap. He was taking over this. He thinks it's such a great thing. Well, I mean, it's not, not done yet. The Senate has to now vote on it. And tell me, what do you think is going to happen there? Um, I, you know, it needs 60 votes to pass. They won't be able to divide the question like they did in the House. Uh, they'll, they'll, have, they'll take one vote on this. Um, potentially, it gets delayed past Friday. Potentially, the vote is until Saturday or even Sunday because of the way this process can get slowed down in the Senate. But I think eventually it will pass. Um, just one comment on, you know, you said it was the four 30 leaders. Seconds. Uh, 30 seconds. 30 uh, seconds. Sure. The four leaders that passed it. That's it. Those are the only people that worked on this bill. There are 531 other members of Congress that had nothing to do with writing the bill. And, and, and how sorry is that? It's terrible. And so basically, as we have seen in other things like uh, the, the draconian COVID rules, the members of Congress have just their own power and sphere of influence has just been diminished. And much as in the country, it's we're top down leadership. That's what's happened in Congress so that their voice is just uh, made so small and they're punished if they don't go along with leadership. It's just disgraceful, Tommy. It really is. And uh, I want to thank you and Heritage for speaking the truth. People are fighting and you can still contact your senator and say no on the omnibus and hold their feet to the fire. Hold them accountable. Sandy Rios in the morning, AFR Talk. Paul writes, when one part of the body suffers, we suffer together. This is Bible League International, and here's a very startling statistic. Every five minutes outside of America, a Christian is killed simply because they believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let me give you some perspective. By the end of the average hour-long worship service in America on a Sunday, 12 Christians will die, again, simply because of their faith. Now listen, persecution is arguably the top issue facing the global church today. I'm not saying that death is affiliated with every every case of persecution, but at Bible League, we know Christians who are singled out, targeted, monitored, threatened with death, even killed simply because of their faith. Listen, we can do something about it by sending exactly what they're praying for to persevere and endure, and that's God's Word at $5 a Bible, $100 sends 20 Would you pray about it and then make your most generous gift by calling 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or give at sendbiblesnow.org, sendbiblesnow.org, and God bless you for caring. This is Pause to Pray, a chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. 
Today, we pray for Norman Sharpless, director of the National Cancer Institute. His office conducts research, training, and other activities related to the causes, prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. James 5.15 reminds us of the health and healing we seek from God. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for guidance for Norman Sharpless in his work at the National Cancer Institute. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is the service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team. Get your 2022 prayer guide and make this the year of prayer. Available now at pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes. Stand by for news and commentary next. When deciding where to pursue your career goals, you want a university that you can trust, that offers a world-class education with the values, knowledge, and skills you need to succeed. That place is Liberty University, and now is the perfect time to start. Liberty is celebrating 50 years of training champions for Christ, a mission that has not wavered since it opened in 1971. With more than 700 programs online and on campus, Liberty can help you turn your vision into a future you can be proud of. Learn more by texting STARNS to the number 49596. I've been telling you for quite some time there is more than meets the eye when it comes to what happened at the U.S. Capitol last year. Yes, some very bad people did some very bad things and they should be punished. But most of the people at the Capitol that day were invited to be there. Video shows the police moved aside barriers. They ushered people into the buildings. And yet many of those people were arrested. And now we're beginning to learn the rest of the story. Project Veritas conducted an undercover investigation, interviewing a New York Times reporter, Matthew Rosenberg, a Pulitzer Prize winner. He said there were actually tons of FBI informants who were involved in the attack and that the media coverage distorted what really happened, which is interesting because Mr. Rosenberg's public writings contributed to the distortion. Beware of the media's narrative and just know that what they say is fact is in fact fiction. Reporting from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, I'm Todd Starnes. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Guy Reffitt of Wiley, Texas, never made it into the Capitol on January 6th, but armed with a semi-automatic handgun and zip ties, he confronted police outside the building and waved the mob in, later boasting of his exploits. I don't care. Pelosi's head's hitting every step I drag her by her ankle. She's coming out. But he's now facing decades in prison after being convicted on all five counts, including bringing a gun to the Capitol, obstructing Congress's certification of the election, and interfering with police. The landmark verdict gives the Justice Department newfound leverage over the nearly 500 Capitol riot defendants still facing possible trials. By winning this case decisively, uh, it also increases the the opportunity for the Department of Justice to gain cooperation from those defendants who were perhaps leaders of this riot. Reffitt's own son testified against him, saying he was so frightened of Reffitt's anti-government rants that he tipped off the FBI. After the attack, Reffitt threatened to kill his son and daughter if they turned him in. Still, their mother, Reffitt's wife, defended her husband today and said other January 6th defendants shouldn't be scared off. What would you tell the other people who are still to stand trial in these cases after watching a guilty verdict? Don't take a plea. Do not take a plea. They want us to take a plea. 
Meanwhile, there's a new high-profile defendant. Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio was arrested today and appeared in a Miami court, charged with conspiracy for his role directing and coordinating the mob. Court documents say Tario met with the now-indicted head of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, in an underground parking garage in Washington, D.C., the day before the attack. Guy Reffitt's wife says they plan on appealing today's verdict, but in the meantime, sentencing is set for June, and Reffitt faces up to 60 years in prison. All right, Sandy Rios, back with you. That was a CBS report. You could see how... Uh, underlying that, how happy the reporter is. And that is the way the news is reporting the defendants of the January 6th incursion into the Capitol. We talked about this a lot, but not in a while because of all the other news. And so now the trials are taking place and some really horrible things are happening. And one thing, one story that we'll get to, uh, hopefully, while we're talking to Julie Kelly in a second, uh, is that a New York Times reporter was caught, uh, you know, unguardedly, he was caught by James O'Keefe, uh, confessing that the January 6th was nothing but a parade of people just going into the Capitol and how uh, the the left is going apoplectic over it and making something out of nothing. Um, but meanwhile, that reporter is also writing the same stuff that you just heard that CBS reporter report. But let me just say, I don't know the details of all of this, and I definitely am have a bias. Uh, so Julie Kelly has been following this so carefully. You've seen her now. She's been on television a lot with Tucker and other reporters. Julie faithfully watches all of this. She watches the trials. She is the one person, I think, who has the, like she's the encyclopedia of all things January 6th. She's a senior writer at American Greatness. She's also written a book about this called uh, January 6th, How Democrats Used the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right, and she joins us this morning. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Sandy. Yeah, listen, I always appreciate your time because I know that the trials— now I'm a little confused, so clarify. Uh, These guys have been in jail, uh, a lot of them, for a year or almost a year, and the trials just began last week? Yes. So you just heard Scott McFarlane, the CBS reporter, news reporter, who— takes, as you pointed out, great glee in the torment of these January 6th defendants and their families. He uh, is a a low life, in my view, because he harasses these people, and he was the local D.C. reporter, and because of his aggressiveness and the way he portrayed January 6th, he landed him at uh, CBS News, so you just got a taste of his reporting there. Um, But Guy Raffitt is a perfect example So, and it's a very unusual, controversial, and in some ways really heartbreaking case because the family obviously has been torn apart. Um, Guy Ruffett was arrested. His son recorded conversations the family had after he returned home on January 6th. This was, of course, encouraged by the government, asking people to uh, snitch on their own family members, neighbors, coworkers, et cetera. So, of course, you had children doing this as well recorded conversations, turn them into the FBI. Um, his father, Guy, has been in jail since then, uh, detained under pretrial detention orders, as dozens still remain detained under pretrial detention orders. Up to 100 now January 6th defendants have been incarcerated, awaiting trials that have been delayed. So that is um, what happened in that situation. And uh, but I'm Julie- sure... Let me ask you a few questions about Guy Ruffett. I mean, you have a great memory. I don't. I can't keep track of all this. There's like 700 of them, and I'm sure 
You know, it's a challenge. But my understanding is that, you know, even in that report, they said he what went in with zip ties and had a gun. Now, and I never know what's true and what isn't true. The zip ties, as I understand it, from another report, were not were already there, that they were not brought in. Is that is that true? Yes, that is true. And let me say something about the handgun issue. Um, Guy Raffitt is the only person who was charged with bringing a firearm to the Capitol. Again, he never went inside the building. He was outside the building. What Scott McFarland also overlooks is he was attacked by Capitol Police using pepper balls. This is a rifle that um, deploys a ball with pepper spray inside of it, injuring Guy Reffitt, um, shooting it, shooting it, he had bruises. Uh, this is what Capitol and D.C. police both uh, were doing to protesters outside the building. He wasn't trying to get inside. Guy Reffitt was indicted on a firearms charge five months after he was arrested for the obstruction charge and some of the other charges related to uh, conversations with his family. But they never really could prove he had a firearm. They kept showing a photo that someone had of him with a holster. And even the person he traveled with, who also stitched on him, um, did not say, who actually brought a firearm to the Capitol, admitted that he did. But Guy Reffitt was never proven that he had the gun in the holster. They had photographs. And unfortunately, he had a very lackluster defense attorney. And this is important, Sandy, if I could uh, finish this point. Yes, Um, please. A a, a juror told a reporter that one of the reasons the jury found Guy Ruffett guilty so quickly, three hours they deliberated on five charges, very complicated obstruction charges, by the way, is because his defense attorney didn't defend him. So the juror said, well, we assume then that he was guilty because his defense attorney put up no defense. So this is a public defender, again, not working in the best interest of his client. I'm sure it will be appealed, and I'm very hopeful they find a different attorney to represent that family. You know, I, I read a political account of this, and even they said, they they talked about all the, uh, they had Capitol Police doing all this compelling uh, witnessing about how he had taunted them. He didn't actually do anything to them. He taunted them. He called yeah. them traitors, uh, but it was very compelling evidence. But then his attorney didn't call anyone. Called that's no right. one to the defense. This that's just got to be. You know, I know you're not an attorney, neither am I. But that just seems like mistrial material. I just can't understand that. I I totally agree with you, Sandy. And in that political report, and I unfortunately I can't cover it. They don't have a call in line, so it's only pool reporters. Uh, Politico did a good job. BuzzFeed, Zoe uh, Tillman, actually does a very good job just reporting exactly what's happening in the courtroom. Uh, but they did note as it was progressing that uh, that the attorney, William Welch, uh, I think at one point they said was very lackluster, half-hearted defense of the client. And I think even the reporters were shocked that he did not do anything to defend his client. And so I think that that also compelled such a quick verdict. But look, you also have a jury pool in a city that voted nor- nearly 94% for Joe Biden. A few defense counsels uh, conducted polls in D.C., and it is just jaw-dropping the bias that these people already inherently have against January 6th because, of course, it's not just a national story like it is for all of us, but it's a local story. And you have people who are interviewed as potential jurors who have all sorts of ties to federal and local government, 
there were at least six or seven attorneys who were in the jury pool, um, which I just listened to the Whitmer trial of the jury selection. None of this. I mean, it's such a contrast between the prospective jury um, jury. So this is why these defendants have an uphill battle. But if you don't have a defense attorney who is going to go to the mat for you, um, you're in big trouble. And that's what happened with Guy Ruffett. She's so sad. It really is. Um, they it mentioned really is. in the report that we heard, the CBS report, they mentioned uh, Henry Enrico uh, Tario, the former national chairman of the Proud Boys. And I remember very well that day that he was arrested before he, he when he got off the plane. He never was even there. I don't know if you can say anything about what they're charging. I don't know if that, that you know, I'm, I don't expect you to know every detail, Julie, but if you know anything about it, what do you know? Well, he, Enrique Terrio is the alleged head of the Proud Boys. He was arrested January 5th, 2021, on an outstanding warrant for burning a BLM flag, if you could believe it. Arrested. Oh, I can believe it. Uh, he, was let, he was let go and told not to go back into D.C. So he was not at the Capitol January 6th, which was very suspicious because he is person one in all the Proud Boys indictments. Um, my guess, and so he was just now charged with conspiracy, just like Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, and several Oath Keepers members. Here's what I'm guessing, Sydney. The Justice Department is desperate to put some kind of case together against Donald Trump. They are going to use Enrique Terrio and the Proud Boys as one example, because as you recall, in one of the debates, he said, stand by or stand down. Stand down, right. Yeah. He said, stand by, but meaning to say stand down. So, of course, they exploited those comments just like they did with, he said, at Charlottesville, misinterpreted it. They are going to try to build this conspiracy case against Donald Trump, in my opinion, by using people like Enrique Terrio and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who provided, quote unquote, security to people like Roger Stone on January 5th and 6th. So that is. I'm guessing that they're kind of backfilling uh, a potential criminal complaint against the president for conspiracy and obstruction of an official proceeding. I I think you're totally right about that. I mean, you can just see it all coming together. Why wouldn't they? They've been so successful with everything else. And I would, that's, on another day, I'll talk about the fact that they're going after any attorney uh, who was involved in this. Some of many of my friends, John Eastman, uh, um, Cleta Mitchell, and others, any any involved with President Trump, they're going after them to uh, punish them, uh, to have them lose their law license. It's an all-out war. It really is. And there's very few people to defend, uh, people who just were doing their job or what they felt was right at the time. We can have disagreements over what is right and wrong, but we usually, we used to have free choice in this country. I want to talk about a few other personalities in all of this. Um, just, I've not, I have spoken about the Suicide of Matthew Perna, and um, his funeral was just, what, last week, I think. He was 38 years old. Just uh, say a word about that, Julie, um, uh, about your perspective on what happened there. Well, he was tormented by this Justice Department. I mean, you just are talking about a group that was just put together to target over 100 attorneys who just filed election lawsuits uh, and tried to fight this unlawful election. This government, this regime, these agencies, and the media are out to destroy people's lives. They don't want fair play. They are going to use every tool at their disposal, fair and unfair, to destroy these people. And that is what they did to Matthew Perna. 
Matthew Pernas, 33-year-old man, businessman, graduate of Penn State University, a Trump supporter, used to be a Bernie Sanders supporter, went to the Capitol, went to Trump's speech, went to the Capitol, walked into an open door. Capitol Police were standing right there, didn't tell him he couldn't come in, didn't arrest him. He walked in, left after about 20 minutes, didn't bring a weapon, didn't assault anyone, nothing, left. For that, the Justice Department tormented him uh, ever since. Um, he lost his job. He lost the love of his life. His community turned on him. Uh, his family said he could barely even go outside. Um, and so finally, he, like a lot of people do, Sandy, took a plea deal, hoping to get this over with, serve some time, go on with his life. He was not charged with any violent crime, the stupid obstruction of an official proceeding, and a few other trespassing charges. So he's just going to plead guilty thinking he'd do maybe a few months in jail. Justice Department came back, a man named Matthew Graves, who was the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, came back and informed his attorney that they would be looking for upwards of 71 months in prison for Matthew Perna. His attorney told me when he found out that drove him over the edge, and Matthew Perna, 33 years old, hanged himself in his garage um, two weeks ago tomorrow, uh, on Friday, February 25th. His family in obituary said he died of a broken heart, that he had been turned on by uh, his community and the country that he loved. And that is what happened to Matthew Perna. They finally closed the case against him yesterday. The Justice Department refused, refuses to make any comment. I've emailed them repeatedly and even got the prosecutor in chart on the case on the phone and tried very quickly to get off the phone with me. They will not even make a comment about this man's suicide. These are the inhumane people who are handling this prosecution. I, it's uh, it's uh, it just upsets me. I don't. I'm sure it must upset you on a daily basis, Julie. Uh, it's just the, the unfairness, it's the injustice. It just is uh, maddening. It's the uh, listen, inhumanity, we... Sandy. It, injustice is horrible. It's these people are sadists. They are gratified. Yeah by inflicting pain on other people and these are people with a lot of power that's very scary julie we have to take a break but when we come back there are other there's a trial going on right now that you're watching i think it convenes this afternoon at four i want to talk about that i want to talk about james comey weighing in there's an fbi whistleblower on part of this uh there's a there's a lot more to discuss my guest is julie kelly and again her book is j6 how democrats use the capitol protests to launch a war on terror against the political right Understatement, really. Not sensational, understatement. We'll be right back. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Christ died, Christ rose, Christ's coming again. But until then, Christ reigns. I'm Charles Morris with Haven Today. Join me all week broadcasting from Eastern Europe, sharing stories that remind us that Christ reigns even in times of war. Haven Today, weekday mornings at 4.30 Central on American Family Radio. Listen online at AFR.net. I love this country. Well, can I tell you something? I love the Lord more than I love this country, and I love the body of Christ more than I love this country. So it is because I love you, frankly, I have to tell the truth. There are many that are more concerned with the consequences in our nation. Then we are about the call. The Hamilton Quarter. 
weekday afternoons at 5 Central on American Family Radio. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Full weaponization of the federal government to crush a political opponent. Politicians and a political party that build themselves as pro-life while refusing to actually do what's in their power to stop the killing of little babies. The successful and unrelenting advance of regressivism. All of these are signs that our national condition is not merely a natural phenomenon. It's spiritual. Civic engagement without spiritual engagement produces political roller coasters. National course correction will only come by national repentance. We must elevate him. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net for more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relief. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. In a world in which tyranny is on the march from Ukraine to China to Latin America, there was an important victory for freedom yesterday. The people of South Korea rejected the presidential candidacy of a pro-North Korea, anti-America communist. Instead, they elected his conservative opponent, Yoon Suk-yeol, who has pledged to strengthen his country's alliance with the United States, rebuild its ties with Japan, and enhance its defenses against growing threats from North Korea and China. The question occurs, will the lame duck leftist President Moon Jae-in use his remaining weeks in office to redouble his policy of appeasing North Korea that has been formally repudiated by the electorate? Not only would such a gambit be at odds with popular sentiment, it could embolden tyrants in Pyongyang and Beijing to take advantage of the transition to advance their territorial ambitions. This is Frank Gaffney. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at sandy at AFR.net. That's sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. You know, one of the issues here is that like on the Fox News of the world, other elsewhere, is that the left's overreaction, the left's reaction to it in some places was so over the top that it gave the opening, the right even, to start introducing the idea of, well, these people are out of control. It's not a big deal as they're making it. They were making too big a deal. They were making this organized thing that it wasn't. And that gave the opening for the lunatics on the right to be like, oh, well, nothing happened here. It was just a peaceful bunch of tourists, you know? And it's like, just, but nobody was here. Not as big of a deal as the media made it out to be. 
Well, that hasn't stopped Rosenberg from publishing his Part 2 article earlier this year describing the false narratives that circulate around January 6th in the events that unfolded. You know, we're the ones, not Fox, not my party, who actually went and uncovered the fact that, like, there were a ton of FBI informants on the people who attacked the Capitol. That was us, not the right one. Have you guys talked to anybody who's actually been arrested? Yeah, although most of them are the lawyers who told them that. Them. Talk to us. Like if, if you're facing serious criminal charges, you probably the last thing you should just talk to a journalist. Unless there's like a very specific reason that you need like that some good to come of it. Like there's no way you should talk to me. No good's gonna come of it. Because anything you say can end up in court. And you just don't want to be arrested. I would Rosenberg is right. What good can come from speaking to a journalist who privately describes the events on January 6th as not a big deal, yet spins something entirely different for the world to read in his newspaper? Project Veritas has received letters from those incarcerated for being present that day. Voices that remain unheard describe a total lack of due process, spurred by the reactions, or in Rosenberg's words, overreaction of how those events were portrayed around the world by the media and politicians. That's an amazing story that James O'Keefe and Project Veritas have uncovered. The voice that you heard and could maybe had trouble understanding was Matthew Rosenberg, New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning writer, uh, who, as James described, was writing for the New York Times about how horrible the, you know, the riot was. Meanwhile, privately talking about how it was not a big deal, it was a peaceful bunch of tourists, it was not organized, uh, that he and his other fellow reporters uh, at the New York Times were the ones who actually found out that the FBI was very involved. It's amazing. It's just another incredible dagger. And before I go further, let me reintroduce Julie Kelly, who's joined us this morning. And if you want to follow what Julie's writing, she is a senior writer at American Greatness. Also, she tweets all the time, and you can follow her tweets at at Julie Kelly. Um, and you can read her book, which is uh, the whole story of J6. So, uh, Julie, just your thoughts about uh, uh, Matthew Rosenberg and that clip of James O'Keefe, the undercover clip. I mean, it's very revealing, uh, but not surprising that uh, a lot of what comes out, of course, not just the New York Times, but all the corporate media is performative. They have to go along with this idea that January 6th was this horrible terrorist attack, an attempt to overthrow our democracy, whatever that means. Um, So they have to play along because, of course, this bolsters what the Justice Department is doing to people. Um, But what's more, uh, I think, I would like to see uh, people press the New York Times and other papers New York Times is the paper last September that broke the story that there were FBI informants uh, infiltrated with the Proud Boys. They've not written a follow-up story since that article. Now, I have a hard time to be- in believing, and I know the reporter who wrote the first piece, I have a very hard time believing that that's the extent of it, that the New York Times just looked at documents, they saw stories, you know, reporting confirmation of a few informants, and they just left it at that. This, I mean, the cover-up of the FBI's involvement not only is coming from the FBI itself, of course, but also the media. This should be the juiciest story in decades that the FBI, how deep, not just the FBI, but as Matthew Rosenberg said, other agencies, CIA, NSA, not to mention D.C. Metro Police, Capitol Police, uh, involved in what happened that day, but, and certainly beforehand leading up to 
to what happened that afternoon. Um, but no one is interested in it. And we had the FBI, counter, one of the counterintelligence chiefs, refuse to answer Ted Cruz's questions during a hearing in January, whether FBI informants or agents either incited or were involved with violent behavior on January 6th, she wouldn't answer the question. And no one has followed up on that. It's just astonishing. But of course, the same thing is happening in the uh, kidnapping, the Whitmer quote unquote kidnapping trial that I'm covering. And I'm, I'm going to cover as soon as we hang up. Um, there's no interest in that either, because, of course, that was completely concocted and executed by the FBI. So the lack of interest, it's not lack of interest, of course, it is complicity. It's covering up what our own government did in both cases. Um, and it's really so, I mean, I guess you have to get a reporter kind of drunk before you get the truth out of him. And uh, I don't yeah. think he's said anything since. Well, let me just, uh, there. last night someone sent me uh there was a whistleblower out of the FBI uh, ad that has come to Jim Jordan, and so uh, he's asking for a hearing no later than March the 23rd. And this has to do with the placement of the bombs at, you know, at the Democrat alleged placement of bombs, pipe bombs, uh, the night before the January 6th incursion into the Capitol and uh, President Trump's speech. Uh, these pipe bombs were placed, according to the FBI. Uh, at the the Democratic National C- Committee headquarters and the Republican National headquarters, and there are videotapes, of course, as you know, Julie. Uh, and then, but yet nobody can find these people. Just can't. They can find seven hundred uh, Americans using their bank records and you know all the things they shouldn't even have access to. They can go to their homes and do these early morning raids and scare them to death uh, and ruin their lives. But they can't find out uh, who is actually filmed on the video. Uh, placing the pipe bombs. And so this uh, a- a agent is a whistleblower in this regard. And then the, I'm going to have you comment on that, but let me just also interject that James Comey now is coming out of the woodwork and he's written in the Washington Post um, our, a rah-rah for FBI agents who it sounds like there's a problem that FBI agents are not crazy about pursuing people uh, all of the people that they're being ordered to pursue on January the 6th. And he's talking to them how how it's so important to create shock and awe and scare people so that we can restore order. So that's a, that's very quick telling of that. But your comments on both of those things, Julie? Well, the pipe bomb story, it looks more and more like another hoax. Um, how could they not have found an alleged bomber? They showed a grainy video. We don't even know if that's the guy who did it. They claim that the bombs were planted the night before. Um, we have no report on what, what the bombs contain. We see a few odd pictures. Don't even know if that's actually were the devices. But what started to raise a lot of concern is the revelation that contrary to what DOJ has lied about for a year in charging indictments to a grand jury, et cetera, that Kamala Harris was in the building at, uh, on January 6th in the Capitol building. She was not. She was actually at the Democratic National Committee headquarters, which Politico broke that story in December. So the question is, how did the Secret Secure? How did the Secret Service miss a pipe bomb sitting outside of this building before Kamala Harris arrived? Because of course, as the incoming vice president, she had Secret Service protection. So Ron Johnson has sent a letter to the head of the Secret Service asking, how did they miss this pipe bomb? Can't get any answers out of the Secret Service either. Can't get any answers out of the FBI. The media has lost interest. So now, apparently, looks like there is a whistleblower saying, 
finally, last month, the FBI, I think, in a CYA move, sent letters to all of their 56 um, field offices asking if any of their informants had information about this pipe bomb. None of this makes sense. But of course, the pipe bomb scare is what really um, lit the match on January 6th and led to the evacuation of some house buildings nearby because, of course, these two, the Republican National Headquarters, where a pipe bomb also allegedly was found, DNC headquarters are right near the Capitol building. And so is the the RNC. Pardon me? And so is the RNC. Very close. Yes, RNC and DNC are close to each other and close to the Capitol building. So this prompted the evacuation, um, some uh, news reports right away, and also allowed for police to search vehicles in the area. And I think this was another reason why, if this was a hoax, this justified searching private property looking for guns, explosives, et cetera, which they did find in one vehicle, and they arrested uh, one man for carrying guns uh, into Washington, D.C. But anyway, we still have no information on these pipe bombs. So it looks like there's a whistleblower who is saying, you know, this is what's happening. They oddly sent these letters to the field offices, but this is not any sort of serious investigation. So we'll see if the FBI will respond to Jim Jordan. My guess is no, but the letter also said, Jim Jordan, uh, that this FBI is cooperating with the January 6th committee looking at the pipe bombs, which, of course, you have not heard the January 6th committee say a word about the pipe bomb scare, which right away should raise Uh, more confidence that this was another hoax related to what happened that day. Yep. Let me just read this one paragraph short of James Comey's uh, article in the Washington Post. He said, I keep hearing that some FBI special agents scattered around the country don't understand why it's so important that everyone be held accountable who committed any crime at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, even if that crime was only trespassing inside the building. Here's what I would say to them. Your comments about James Comey Comey, sticking his head up on this. About his op-ed in the Washington Post? Yeah, yeah. And he's just now finding his voice and kind of scolding agents who seemed a little hesitant. I think that's really significant. Right. So it seemed like the point was that there are disgruntled FBI agents who are like, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to conduct early morning raids at the homes of people who walked into a public building and committed no crime. And you had Merrick Garland today in an NPR uh, article um, interview saying how this is the biggest investigation in DOJ's history, that you have every FBI field office working 24-7 to hold accountable anyone criminally responsible for January 6th. Well, after more than a year, I'm sure I want to believe that there's still some decent FBI agents out there. I'm hoping more than one whistleblower will come forward and explain what this corrupt agency is doing, turning on its own citizens. Julie, um, Julie, we we just have two minutes left, I'm realizing, and there's so much more. There's a trial today. Can you just say a word about what that is? Is that that, that the the Michigan trial you just alluded to? Okay. Yes. So the trial of four men uh, charged with conspiring to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer is undergoing. I'm going to cover that this morning, too, as yesterday. Originally, the judge did not want the defense to raise entrapment issue, um, but it was clear after opening statements yesterday that was not possible. So the judge did allow the four defense attorneys to 
uh, to present an entrapment, FBI entrapment case to the jury because it's impossible to explain to the jurors what happened in this case without talking about the 12 undercover agents and informants who were deeply involved in luring these men into this plot. So it's a very interesting backstory, backdrop to what's happening with the January 6th investigation also. Let's, before we say goodbye, just a couple of words about what you see. There are so many judges, you know, there's a lot of judges here. And there are some really bad players, like you point out, this Maida, I don't know his first name, uh, but he had, Um, go ahead, you say he's one of the worst, it sounds to me like. um, Judge Amit Maida is actually, and this is the D.C. District Court that is handling all of the January 6th cases. These people have no shot. You know, you're you're prosecuted by D.C. prosecutors. You go before D.C. judges. Amit Mehta is a very smart judge. Some of them are not very smart, but he's highly political and partisan. I think he's trying to maneuver himself a promotion under uh, Joe Biden. And, um, you know, he's handling these very important, like the Oath Keepers cases, but he also is keeping people, uh, including nonviolent offenders, held behind bars simply because of their participation on January 6th. It's really such a tragically rigged system. And what's scary is is the open contempt that people in our nation's capital have for half of the nation. It's really really been a a revealing experience for me to cover it. Yep, yep. Well, it's a a cesspool, Julie. (laughs) I've lived there for many years. Yeah. Terrible. It yeah. really is. And so you can follow Julie's writing. Uh, you can go to her Twitter account. It's a great resource at Julie Kelly because it happens faster than published articles. But the published articles are in American Greatness for the most part. But she writes other places, too. But Julie is the one who has her finger on the pulse of this situation. And many of you were there on January 6th. You have family members. And so Julie is a great resource. Also, remember that she's written this great book. Uh, January 6th, how Democrats used the Capitol protest to, to launch a war on terror against political right. Julie Kelly, thanks so much for your time. Sandy Rios in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.